The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So today I want to continue a three-part series of talks on the three characteristics. And these, uh, this particular teaching on the three characteristics is a, a foundational teaching for the Theravadan Buddhism that we come out of, Buddhism of Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka. And uh, it's particularly important for the people doing insight meditation, mindfulness meditation, because the insight of insight meditation uh, uh, points to insight into these three characteristics. And the three are impermanence, the way in which there's some way in which all experiences can be characterized by being impermanent. Uh, the second is uh, usually translated into English as suffering. The word is dukkha, and uh, so all all experiences can somehow be characterized as uh, having some quality of dukkha, suffering, perhaps. And, I, and then the third is that uh, all things can be characterized as not self, and that's that'll be a topic for next week. Last week we talked about impermanence. Today the topic is uh, this dukkha, suffering. When I was practicing in Thailand, uh, we were given little, what's called kutis, little uh, cabins, little one, very small, like, I don't know, 12 by 12 or 12 by 8 foot little uh, huts in the woods to meditate in. And there was usually kind of creatures sharing the hut with you. And, um, and uh, there was this, these little geckos and uh, they would be in the ceiling and around. And, and in my ears, the geckos were always saying, Dukkha, Dukkha. <laughs> Reminding us of how important this particular insight is. So, um, <clears throat> so Dukkha is uh, kind of at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. There's one place where he says, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. I only teach suffering, the end of suffering. Everything else is supposed to fit underneath the, that statement, suffering and the end of suffering. And, um, and what, he, what the Buddha has in common in emphasizing suffering is uh, he has, it's, it's a common approach for uh, kind of philosophies or world religions which uh, don't have a theistic uh, foundation. If you have, many of the theistic uh, kind of approaches have some other kind of standard by which they're measuring uh, human life or what's important. But when you don't have like a, 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 uh, a transcendent other as a reference point, as an authority, as a one who's bestowing the, um, you know, the scriptures or something, what do you, what, on what basis do you use for a reliable guide in your life and what to do? And so whether it's uh, Epicurus and some of the other Greek philosophers uh, some of the uh, important uh, British philosophers who were the kind of origins for empiricism and, and uh, pragmatism, uh, or Freud, the uh, emphasis was to really understand the centrality of suffering and the possibility of ending suffering. And the idea, I think, I think part of the idea is that su- uh, suffering is something you can experience. Dukkha is something you can experience. And the freedom from it you can experience and it becomes uh, supposedly a reliable reference point to find our way towards the end of suffering, to the relief of suffering. 
some of the more uh, religiously ultimate statements about reality that you can make, uh, or even such things like that there is a God, for example, um, you know, not everyone agrees with that. And you have to, and you, how do you prove it? How do you figure it out? You know, so it becomes a kind of a complex issue for some people to try to use that as a, as a foundation for a philosophy or way of life. But, uh, you, you know, if you're suffering, you don't exactly argue with it. You know, it's just there. You know it's there. And, uh, and the question is, how do you find your way out of that? And so the, uh, another place you see the centrality of the focus on suffering, or dukkha, whatever that might mean, in Buddhism is in the Four Noble Truths. And the first noble truth is the noble truth uh, of suffering or of painfulness, depending how you translate it. And, um, and I remember one um, Buddhist teacher, uh, Buddhist monk came to Spirit Rock many years ago and, and uh, he was laughing and, and saying, oh, suffering, you know. We don't want to suffer, but we want to have noble suffering. And, and, and he, wasn't gl- he wasn't glorifying suffering, like you should just, like, just look for suffering. But what he was saying is that if you're going to suffer anyway, have noble suffering. And what he meant by that was um, uh, address your suffering as a path to the freedom of suffering. And if you have that kind of uh, dignity or that kind of courage or that kind of confidence that you have a path to address it, to move beyond it, then uh, that's uh, noble suffering. And um, so, um, and some people find it a great uh, relief to be in a teaching, in a, in a practice that emphasizes that t- the idea of being honest about our distress, our suffering, our pains that we have. Um, so they address them rather than maybe avoiding them, pretending they're not here, uh, making uh, pastorally beautiful pictures of this world, kind of to cover over what's actually happening. And in Buddhism, I think the emphasis is uh, to have very honest uh, willingness to stop, look at, to address, to be with suffering, and not pretend otherwise when it's there. And so part of the function of mindfulness practice and Buddhist practice is, in fact, to have a deep insight into suffering, into dukkha. However, each of these three characteristics... Uh, has an opposite. And the opposite of dukkha is uh, well-being, is sukkha. Dukkha, sukkha. And, uh, and sukkha means happiness or well-being. I like the word well-being because it's an umbrella term that can cover many different things within it. Whereas if you say happy or joy, then it kind of narrows it and maybe a little bit difficult sometimes to find ourselves in that kind of language. But well-being... And uh, the nature of Buddhist practice is that what we uh, are cultivating is well-being so that we can have the insight into ill-being. We can have... uh, uh, So you don't want to emphasize, you know, when you first come to practice, well, just sit down and really kind of get into your suffering. Just, you you know, address it directly right away. Sometimes that's useful, but uh, sometimes that just kind of can wear a person down. That you want to create a condition that allows you an optimal way to really uh, uh, be present and see deeply into the nature of suffering. And so the way to do that is to cultivate some modicum of well-being. Um, and then with that modicum of well-being as a foundation, then we look at the suffering. 
So much so that the, it's useful to think of the three characteristics as insights that are revealed when the foundation is in place, when practice gets strong. So we don't have to go looking for suffering. It'll find you. <laughs> but uh, so you, know, you don't have to go looking for it so much. But, when it, but what we want to try to do is to cultivate well-being. And so there are um, uh, you know, so a variety of ways maybe of doing that. Um, one, I think maybe the most useful thing to say is um, for you to consider what, bring, what do you know already brings you some modicum of well-being? What are some of the things that you do? What are some of the things that you can do that can do that? Um, and what's a reliable kind of well-being? Not the kind of well-being that comes from getting pleasure that distracts you from things. Uh, you know, there's a kind of a well-being maybe from drinking a lot of alcohol, but that, temp- that pleasure is temporary. Um, I, I don't watch hardly any TV. But I remember once many years ago watching some TV and, and I, you know, it was kind of pleasant enough to watch when I watched it. But when it was over, I felt drained. You know, like, wow, what was that about? You know, what, what, how did that happen? And, um, you know, just didn't, I didn't feel, you know, enlivened by it. And uh, so what is it that kind of helps you to thrive, helps you feel nourished, helps you feel... Uh, supported, helps you kind of a sense of uplifting well-being in your life. And it's a good thing to reflect on because if you have some ways that you have available to yourself, um, then the question is, uh, do you avail yourself of that? Do you give yourself the chance to do those things? If it's just simply going for a walk around your neighborhood or is it simply, you know, going to the park and, and sitting there, you know, and looking at, you know, the birds, um, you know, what is it? This morning at my house, um, we ha- I guess it's time of year, because all our kind of windows are open, uh, we had this cacophony of birds, bird songs. It was, it was the delight. You know, it's early in the morning, it starts a little bit, and then it builds, builds to this orchestra that happens. It's quite, quite loud at our, where we live. And, um, and uh, you know, I was delighted by this. And, so I could have just gone back to doing whatever I was doing on my computer and then reading the news or something. Or I could have just sat there quietly and took it in, which is what I did for a little bit. And, you know, so, oh, look at that, it's nice. And it brought me a sense of delight and well-being to hear all those bird sounds. So it doesn't, we're not talking about, you know, some big thing to make you happy, but what are some of the small ways that brings a smile to your face or brings you some kind of joy or happiness that you can do that you're, uh, you're too busy doing important things to do. And, um, and are the things that you're, some of the things that you feel are so important that you fill your life with, are they really in the bigger equation of things? Are they really the right thing to be doing? I know that for myself, it's sometimes um, in the moment something can seem important to take care of, but the accumulation of being involved in little busy projects and taking care of things and avoiding having, doing things which bring a sense of well-being has its toll. And I think we need to, we need to be fed by something. What, fe- what, feeds, what feeds you? I like the word nourishes. What nourishes you in an important way, in a psychological way, and what nourishes your heart? So I keep asking you, what, what, do, you, what, what, what do you have? What's your way? Do you have a way? And then do you give yourself time for that? So that something can settle and relax and 
somehow settle and relax or, or inform kind of your cells, you know, kind of, so, so somehow the sense of well-being penetrates deep inside into the marrow of your bones even, rather than just kind of staying at the surface. So that takes time. Uh, to have that kind of effect from well-being, where it kind of penetrates and informs you and kind of lets go of some of the fear we hold on to or some of the lack of safety we feel or some of the anger we have, whatever it might be, it's very inefficient. It's one of the, one of the unfortunate things, that how, unfort- how inefficient spirituality is. <laughs> you know, you, you know, it'd be much better if it was, you know, fast you know, five-minute meditation max, that should do it, right? <laughs> Just get on to the important things. But you need, we need to give ourselves time. That's why I think some cultures have Sabbaths. I think it's a really wise thing to have a Sabbath, to slow down, take time, and let something else kind of unfold and open up and happen. The Buddhist tradition offers a variety of suggestions for well-being. And um, most often, the most common one is uh, live a life of integrity, ethical integrity. Uh, It's difficult to be happy if you go around killing people or animals. It's difficult to be happy if you go around stealing. It's difficult to be happy if you are lying. It's difficult to be happy if you're harming other people with your sexuality. And it's difficult to be happy if you're abusing intoxicants. So if you want to be happy, uh, somehow you have to shift that and move towards what the opposite of that, doing those things Buddhism would call a life of ethical integrity. The other thing that Buddhism emphasizes is um, the tremendous value of generosity. That uh, over and over and over again, Buddhism says that uh, uh, doing acts of generosity begins to shift the heart, shift the mind. And one of the reasons to to practice generosity is not just for supporting someone else and doing something nice for other people, but rather also for the benefits you get from it. Uh, it conditions you. It, it's a nourishing thing for the heart. It's meant to be. To make ethics, ethical integrity, and generosity uh, food for your well-being does require considering how you do it, how you relate to it. It's not just automatic. Um, some people are really kind of um, uptight around their ethics and kind of fear-based around it. And so they're very ethical, but they're not being nourished by it. They're not helping them relax by it. They're kind of like holding it in a fragile way. Some people, same thing with generosity, feel like it's such an important duty. You know, I have to do, in order to be a good, successful person, to be an adequate person, I, you know, I need to be generous. I have to do these things. And the sense of duty is so strong that um, there's no relaxing into it. There's no taking time to appreciate it and to uh, allow the appreciation, allow the appreciating oneself for it to be there. The Buddhist tradition does emphasize this thing of take time to appreciate the good things you've done. So there's the bliss of blamelessness. So if you, uh, for the time that you've been, from the time that you've been ethical, <laughs> so, you know, maybe it was just from getting up this morning. <laughs> That's, you know, uh, appreciate the bliss of that blamelessness. You know, appreciate that. Be nourished by that. Um, from the time, you know, if you've done something generous, feel the bliss of generosity, the joy of generosity. Be, be nourished by it. And then there's the, the joy of meditation practice. And it's not always going to be joyful. 
It's not always going to be easy. But it's kind of good to keep in mind that that's kind of the direction where we want to be looking or headed. It's kind of, you can at least look in that direction. You know, if you want to go south and you're looking north, some, it, you can get south, but it's a long way <laughs> around the globe. But, uh, so it's possible, but, uh, but so uh, it took me a long time to realize that it was okay and reasonable, so that, you know, it's a completely, completely ordinary human thing to be open to the possibility of having meditative joy. When it, and, but what happened, you know, in my early years of Zen practice, uh, it was so like, Zen for me was so this direct pointing to ultimate reality. And you had to kind of be there or not. <clears throat> You know, and, this, mm. <laughs> and when I was in Japan, the the, the monks would often uh, reprimand me, and they would say things: "Gil, do things with Zen no chikara, z- uh, with Zen power, Zen strength." And uh, the idea of kind of smiling was, I developed a very good upside down smile when I was a Zen student. <laughs> 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 um, and it, was, it came from a kind of seriousness. I love Zen. It's a tremendous value. And it brought, actually brought me a lot of joy in the end. But there was a seriousness to it. That, uh, that the way I interpreted that was to um, not really avail myself of joy, not make space for it, not be open to it in a rose. <coughs> so meditative joy, you know, to be open to it. To learn how to tune into it. And learn how to practice in such a way that, um, that uh, some, some sense of well-being and happiness can come with it. And one of the ways to do that is to be very honest about what, un- what, un- what undermines it. Very honest to know what kind of thinking we have, what kind of uh, emotions we have that we get pulled into that begins to drain us uh, and bring in kind of, you know, distress rather than joy. Um, one of the, you know, a few things, voices that I had in my head that <clears throat> undermine my well-being was the voice that um, whatever is happening to me doesn't count. So I would have a variety of experiences that were somewhat good, like I would have some joy, and, and of course, if it was happening to me, it wasn't the joy. This, this, this doesn't really count. You know, other people are having, you know, better joy. <laughs> you know, or it's not, or, you know, that's not what the texts talk about. So if it's happening to me, it's not the right thing. That was one kind of voice, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know where I learned that particular voice, but it was a common voice. Another one was, uh, related to it, I guess, was um, uh, the grass was greener somewhere else. Somewhere else, Someone else was having it. Someone else was doing it. And, and you know, not me. Um, so that kind of undermined me when I had those kinds of voices. Um, so to understand what voices you have, what beliefs you have that undermine you, that get in the way of experiencing the joy of a beautiful day. You know, are you preoccupied with your thoughts? So preoccupied you don't notice that the birds are singing. What goes on with you? So part of mindfulness practice is to understand those things and to learn how to be present in a way that we can notice what's nice. And in fact, I think there's uh, much more appreciation much more to, uh, I would, I, my guess would be that for most people, uh, most people do not appreciate as much as there is to appreciate in their lives. There's much more to appreciate than most people realize. Very occasionally I meet people who appreciate too much. 
<laughs> and, and I feel a little uncomfortable being around them. <laughs> Maybe one another one of those little strange voices, but but uh, you know sometimes it can be overdone, and so that's kind of a denial, a kind of sugaring over what's going on. But I think for most people, there's lots of room for just to take time to appreciate things more. There's a lot to appreciate. Appreciate people. I think it's a beautiful thing. Everyone can be appreciated. There's some, probably something. If you take your time, you can learn to appreciate something about everyone. So this is a little little side, a little aside. If I may, may I do a little aside? I came down with the intention. I'm going to give a straight to the point talk and just kind of not very. But here I am, <laughs> going off. Um, I went for a walk yesterday around my neighborhood with my wife. And uh, we walked by this group of people kind of in a driveway. And uh, they looked like they were kind of either having a party or having an argument. I couldn't quite tell. <laughs> and there were beer bottles in their hands. And, and uh, so we kept walking. And when we could no longer see back what was going on, um, this screaming happened. That we, my wife and I stopped. and like, oh no, there's something terrible happening. Someone yelling. And... and um, And, uh, and then this uh, lady, a uh, woman, w- drove by. And she drove by and saw what was going on the driveway, and she stopped for us and said, there seem to be fighting back there. And then <laughs> she drove off. <laughs> and so um, I, wa- I walked back to talk to them. And, uh, and my wife asked me for my cell phone. <laughs> uh, she didn't have hers, so anyway, so I walked back. And... Um, and uh, it looked, looked kind of, it wasn't like fighting then, but it looked kind of bad what I was seeing. The main first thing I saw was a woman who had her hands over her face, both hands over her face, kind of bent over, and she, her hands were not leaving her face. It looked kind of, I, I didn't know what was going on. And the other guys were kind of like just agitated and, and uh, yelling, yelling and stuff. And, and so I kind of tried to get their attention. I said, you know, anything I can do, anything I can do here to help? And uh, I said, no, no. And, um, and then um, I said, oh, yeah, you know, you know, maybe I can help in some way. No, it's just a family affair. It's, it's in the family. And, and then I said, and, and this was a great thing, I, th- I thought. I mean, <laughs> the, the privilege I have, you know, so, sometimes it's nice to take on an identity. And uh, so I said, which I almost never do, I said, I'm a minister. Can I help? And that calmed things down. <laughs> and, um, and so then they kind of stopped. And then uh, the, seemingly the main guy who was involved in all this, he kind of uh, came over then and to talk to me. And he wanted to shake my hand. And um, so I kind of held his ends of his fingers kind of lightly because the rest of the hand had blood on it. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> but he really wanted to shake my hand well, so, so I thought, okay, you know, I think I'm here to make peace, and if this is what it takes. So I gave him my whole hand. And, um, and so then, um, so then, and this is all about appreciating people somehow, so it's not quite, and, and so then, um, 
at some point in there, I asked the woman, are you, are you okay? Can I do something? And she said, oh, it's okay. And she seemed like generally to kind of feel like uh, she didn't need help. And she, did, she didn't look hurt. There was no, no blood on her face. And I don't know why he had a bloody hand, but um, she seemed okay. And it turned out they were his brothers and sisters. And um, so then the brother, um, one of the first things he wanted to tell me, he said, you know, uh, my father died when I was eight. And then we had a stepfather who joined the family when I was 13. And it's been really hard ever since my family dynamics. Now he said, how old is your sister? And three years younger. Oh, so she was eight, five when the father died. Oh, yeah. And so then I had this information about them, that and him, that my whole feeling for them began to shift. I mean, before I was just kind of concerned. And now I started to feel care for them. And not exactly appreciation, maybe it's not the right word, but I had a whole different perspective of what was going on and what was happening there. And, and um, I could feel my care rising up and my compassion and, and feeling their hard life and what that was like to lose a father at a young age and, and how probably that dynamic was playing out now. They were 18 and 21. And um, so to take the time, you know, find out what's going on with people. Then there's, it's, you know, it leads to appreciation or care or a whole different thing. <clears throat> what do you find out? What do you discover? So, well-being. So as we develop well-being, a sense of, could be a sense of happiness and joy, that creates a container or a foundation or a, 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 a way of being able to see suffering. And there is no shortage of suffering in this world. And there's no shortage of suffering in you. There's layers and layers of suffering. And part of the, the tremendous, uh, powerful insight that comes with deepening a mindfulness practice is to begin to appreciate the depth of suffering within ourselves. It has the different layers or different aspects. <coughs> uh, one of the ones that the tradition emphasizes a lot is not the psychological suffering, but rather um, the unreliability of holding on to anything as providing lasting happiness. The unreliability of anything that provides kind of, really is going to guaranteed, sealed sense of happiness, safety, security, ultimate value or something. You can't hold on to anything. There was a, um, <clears throat> a monk in Thailand who lived in a cave for many, many years and then died. And then they went to his cave to see, and there was a um, cartoon, graffiti in a cave he had drawn on the wall of the cave. And there was a, ma- a drawing of a monk who was very happy, jumping up in the air, kicking his feet, kind of just clearly, kind of just really happy. And then the caption above his head said, Oh, what boundless joy to know there is no true happiness. <laughs> So this is one, you know, it seems kind of like, what? It's kind of, you know, first, if you just said there's no true happiness, we'd all you know, give up. But uh, what boundless joy, I mean, that's great, right? So I think what he was pointing to is that if we want to hold on to something as being the true permanent happiness, we're going to suffer. And, but if we kind of don't hold on, there's a kind of a ease or joy or delight that comes from not holding on, from kind of just kind of being in the, you know, it's like if you go surfing on a, on a wave, 
uh, you don't want to hold on to the wave. This doesn't really work. Um, if you, you have to not hold on, and then you can ride it kind of as, as far as you can, and that's a kind of delight. So one of the one of the form one of the reasons why the, one of the insights into dukkha that's very important is the beginning to appreciate that things are unreliable <coughs> as providing some lasting security, lasting well-being, and that there is an alternative. Rather than wanting that and holding on to that, there's uh, relaxing, letting go, the clinging, letting go, that drive to require that something provide us with lasting well-being, whether it's a, a relationship or a job or a f- you know, um, bank account or, you know, or the right politician in Washington, you know, you know, we don't rely on those things. And, um, and we'd rather rely on kind of an assumption there's not a thing, which is the kind of the open-heartedness that, that happens when we let go, we don't cling or get contracted. So one of the translations for dukkha is unreliability. To understand that there's a certain, a certain kind of way uh, uh, the things of the world are unreliable for ultimate happiness, ultimate well-being. But in order to see that, it's easier if you already have access and know about a certain kind of well-being. You already feel good. You have a confidence in feeling good. And then it's easier to, to face this kind of the unreliability of all these things. And then uh, the other is that um, some people translate dukkha as stress. And um, because uh, some of the translators who do this say, because uh, um, some things we don't conventionally call suffering are stressful. Um, the, um, I once read that uh, you know, the, f- among the five most stressful things in a person's life is getting married. And usually we don't think, you know, marriage is, you know, getting the marriage ceremony, all that stuff as suffering, <laughs> you, know, I'm so, you know, you don't say, I feel so sorry for your suffering, what can I do when, when getting, getting married? But it's, it's, you can, we can understand that it's stressful. And, uh, so, and so certain things that are conventionally good can still be stressful in the system. And so some people, it's, it's more universal, the idea of stress. And what, in fact, and this is why, one of the reasons why some translators like this word stress is that, that in very deep meditation practice, when conventionally there's a tremendous well-being, very still and quiet and peaceful, a lot of peace, uh, one of the things that's very important, very useful to tune into, even in a deep state of peace, there's a very subtle kind of stress that's there. You wouldn't call it suffering, but there's a kind of little stress or tension that's there. And that's also called dukkha. And in order to kind of be able to move beyond that too, it's helpful to, to, um, to see that or to recognize that. Um, because that helps you to move then beyond that that deep level of stress. Um, and then there's a kind of uh, dukkha or, or um, stress of just kind of the constant um, machinations of thinking mind. They, some people are exhausted. It's a lifetime of thinking and figuring and wanting and doing and it's like my story when I was my tw- 21 or 22 or something. I used to love going into bookstores. And then I would leave the bookstores exhausted. And I wondered why. So next time I went to the bookstore, I tried to figure out why I was exhausted. And it was because I wanted most of the titles. And it was the incessant, one. I want that, I want that. I had no money. 
So I want this, I want that, I want that, I want that. Really, dra- you know, it was draining to want, 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 want. So when there's a constant kind of an automatic pilot movement of thinking or moving of, of being worried and being afraid or anxious or wanting or hating or trying to have conversations or planning, um, some of those things is reasonable, but uh, they, have a, they can have a toll if it's done incessantly. And some people have patterns of thinking, patterns of intense thinking that they think is just, they don't even know they're doing it. It's just kind of part of the, like a fish doesn't see the air they swim in. Uh, we don't see the, the, you know, the patterns of our incessant thinking. And even more so, we don't see how exhausting it is. And some people, it's only when they go on retreat, meditation retreat, and silent retreat, that it catches up to them. And some people will spend a lot of time on retreat sleeping. They, they're conventionally, they're, you know, they've gotten all the sleep they think they need, but they're recovering from decades of deeper, deeper weariness within. So the suffering of kind of the mental activities that go on kind of in an intense way. And so learning to calm down. Well-being has partly had to do with having the mind be calmer so that the incessant kind of churning of the mind is not operating because that interferes with happiness. That's another function of meditation practice. So we develop, we try to cultivate well-being and with some modicum of well-being the mindfulness practice sooner or later opens up to becoming wiser and to have deeper understanding about the nature of our dukkha, the nature of things being unreliable, what's stressful, the machinations of our mind, kind of begin understanding the causes of our suffering, understanding the, the role of desire and craving in our suffering. And that wisdom around that takes, uh, requires taking a willingness to study and investigate dukkha. And this is part of the very mature aspect of this practice is a willingness to learn about it, to study it, not to bypass it quickly. Take your time with your suffering. Don't be in a hurry. Don't look for the quick fix. Take your time so you can learn. So then, um, uh, the tradition says that if you really kind of uh, are developing yourself, developing your spiritual life in a meditative life in a strong way, then um, at some point it's possible that for some people the experience of liberation, experience of awakening that can happen, happens um, because some people have really deep insight into suffering. That's their door, that's their way, that's their path. Some people their path is impermanence, some people's path is not self. But some people it's really kind of and unfortunately, you can't choose which of your paths you're going to do. So some people just happens to be the suffering path. That's what they kind of get wiser and wiser about and see deeply into. And when people have that path, then uh, at some point, it op- it, say it opens a door. And the door it opens is the door of the wishless. The door of, of um, not having wishes, not having desires. And um, I mean, not no desires whatsoever, but, uh, uh, but uh, there's something about uh, understanding and accepting and relaxing around suffering and not always wanting something else. Because a lot of the suffering has to do with wanting and expecting. And to let go of wanting. And to let go of wanting so, so deeply that the mind does a flip, the mind drops away, the mind 
sees a whole different way of being. The mind sees that it can be at peace without having to get what it wants. So the, the, um, the door of the wish list uh, is considered very important. Now, so there's the, what, we cult- what we cultivate, there's what we have insight into, there's the door we go through, and then there's the gift that each of these opens, to, brings, brings, brings. So for, there's the door of well-being, there's the insight that into suffering, there's the door of the wishless, and the gift for this kind of little complex um, is the gift of aspiration. That's a word I like a lot. Aspiration means, the word I like aspiration is kind of a desire we have, but it's a desire that's more than just a desire. It's kind of like a heartfelt wish. It's a heartfelt inspiration. Um, Without expectation, without insistence. I have an aspiration for world peace. I have an aspiration to do something. And, you know, Dharma willing the world willing, you know, I'm mean, we're, we're moving that direction, it's my aspiration, but I don't know if I'll ever attain it. But aspiration also is kind of like a big dream. I think of the word aspiration, you don't aspire to, you know, going out and getting ice cream at the potluck. And, you know, but you might aspire to be in a nice community setting with, uh, you know, or contribute to the community at the potluck or something. So aspiration. Um, and also the word aspiration is connected to the word breathing like respiration. And I, you know, I, just, I think the breath is deeply connected to some depth within us. So what, what arises from the depth within us as opposed from our thinking mind, our wanting mind, or, you know, uh, what's, the, what's your heart's deepest wish? So the gift in going through this process around dukkha is we come out to the place <clears throat> where we can begin living our life <clears throat> from a deep heartfelt wish, the heart's deepest wish. And that's a, one of the great resources, one of the beautiful things about a human being is to have discovered that and to live that. So cultivate well-being, have insight into suffering, dukkha, go through the door of the wishless, being, will, being willing to discover yourself without any desires whatsoever, put them all down. And then from that, putting them all down, there's room in the heart for the heart's aspiration to come forth. And then hopefully you have the confidence to follow your heart's aspiration, live, live from it, from a free heart. So, um, thank you. Next week, uh, we'll do... Um, Next Sunday we'll do uh, not self, and you'll discover what that door that opens up to, and the gift and the gift of that. Thank you all. <laughs>